This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome and thanks so much for being with us again. The Bible has quite a lot to say about the subject of money. The Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 1 Timothy 6 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And yet Proverbs 13, 11 tells us, Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. So how are we to think about the subject of money and money management from a biblical perspective? It's very practical. And we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Jim Neuheiser. He is the director of the Christian Counseling Program and associate professor of practical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, as well as the executive director of the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. And we're going to be discussing his book, Money, Debt and Finances, Critical Questions and Answers. Jim, welcome. It's great to have you with us again. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. I know this is a tough subject. Money is always a little bit of a touchy and awkward subject for Christians. But you say, and I think this is a great place to begin, that our goal is to glorify God in our finances. What exactly does that mean? How do we glorify God in our finances? It's really quite comprehensive, Janet. I actually dedicate the book to people who have glorified God by working hard and working smart to the glory of God and have given to the churches where I've served and the other institutions like Reformed Theological Seminary. And so many people glorify God by being productive as God has made us to be productive and then using what God has given them as stewards. Right. We, we glorify God by providing for our families. First Timothy 5.8 says, if you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so it honors God for someone to work hard to make sure that his his uh, aged, widowed mother and grandmother are taken care of, and that his own family or her own family is taken care of. So uh, I think, as in all things, we can comprehensively glorify God, uh, even including in our financial life. Yes. Well, that's a really important point when you mentioned that we are to work hard for God's glory to provide for our families. It's kind of interesting because as we've watched our society go in a kind of a weird direction these days, you have people talking about universal basic income and and we're, we're beginning to introduce some of these principles that even if you're not working hard, even if you're not the one necessarily doing all the work for your own family, that we need as a society to do a redistribution of wealth. There are people who are talking like this. Can you talk a little bit about the biblical perspective on work and money and how that connects? Because we think about private property, clearly, as you point out in the book, is affirmed and it is important. You know, as Paul said, he who does not work does not eat. How does the Christian think about this, this whole issue of work? Yeah, um, it's interesting. You reference Second Thessalonians 3, where Paul dealt with a problem in the church of people who were lazy and and so we think thousands of years later, we have new problems. It's the same old problem. There are sluggards in every age, yeah. and often they try to take advantage of those who are productive. 
and who, you know, then they, they want start some of what the others have earned for themselves without having to be diligent and acquire skills. And so uh, from a biblical standpoint, you know, we would ourselves in the churches want to restrict giving to those, you know, there are people who have real need. There are widows who can't provide for themselves. I've been teaching and preaching in the book of Ruth, and you have provision of the Old Covenant. Interestingly, gleaning allowed the widows and the needy not to have loaves of bread dropped on their doorstep, but actually allowed them to go out into the fields, pick up what was not harvested, uh, beat it into flour, bake their own bread. And so, and some of that also just in the context of community and God's wisdom was that the needy had opportunity with accountability of the committee to work, of the community, to work to provide for themselves. But there's a lot that, of course, government and some charitable institutions may be well-meaning do that circumvent uh, the motivation that God gives people to work. Right. That's a really good point. So when we're talking about money in general, what what would you say are some common misunderstandings that we might have about money and, and especially how the Lord views money? I think one misunderstanding and one extreme would be that if you're faithful, you'll have lots and lots of money. You know, we have a Savior who didn't have a place to lay his head. And we have Peter saying, silver and gold have I none. And so some people who are very faithful to God, uh, God in his providence doesn't reward them with wealth in this life because our treasure and our wealth is in the life to come. Our best life is later, not now. Yes. Although also you have people in the Bible whom God sovereignly chose to allow to be very productive and to produce wealth and that could be something as well, a misunderstanding in First Timothy 6. It says it's the love of money that's the root of every kind of evil. It's not the money itself. Yep. And so, again, the wealth properly used can be a great blessing for those who are good stewards of it. So that would be a couple of misunderstandings. Maybe a third would be that work is a curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, God works. Jesus says, my father works until now. He worked in the first six days of creation as a model for us, and work is made by God to be a blessing. He put Adam in the garden to work. Now, the, the, the fall has made work difficult, but even so, it was a great principle of Luther and the Reformers taking the ordinary work of believers on farms and simple labor being as important in the eyes of God as people who were in ministry, yes. because all work done to the glory of God is good work. That's right. Now, when we're talking about money in general, and I think your point is really excellent, it's not the money itself that is sinful, it's the love of money that can be a root of all kinds of evils, as you mentioned before in 1 Timothy 6. What about this issue, though, of legitimate versus illegitimate ways of acquiring money? We have, on the one hand, money that you earn, money that you inherit, then you get into different things like uh, gambling, or as you talk about in your book, multi-level marketing schemes. I mean, they're different ways that you can make money. How do we differentiate between legitimate biblical ways of acquiring money versus illegitimate? Well, probably the best way to recognize a counterfeit is to study the real thing. And the Bible says in Proverbs 10 that the hand of the diligent makes rich. And the proverb also says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not serve, he will not serve ordinary men which boiled down to is you work hard, Proverbs 10, but then you work smart. If you have skills, you produce goods and services that people are willing to pay a lot for, and they're happy to give you their money because you're giving them something valuable 
and exchange. So God's formula for creating wealth is to work hard, work smart, provide valuable goods and services. And then Proverbs also warns about get-rich-quick schemes, that you know the one who is hasty to get rich is in poverty, if the one who tills his land will have plenty of food. And so when people are saying you can make a lot of money without skill and without effort, they are lying to you, and you will probably lose money. Right. And I think it's ironic in my state, they call the lottery the education lottery, <laughs> when it's you know people who cannot afford lottery tickets, the same people in some cases who you know want to be given more, that's the last thing they should be doing with their money, and yet it's glorified as some great thing. It's, it's harming people. Yes. Uh, likewise, other forms of gambling, uh, that it's destructive. And I think it really tears apart with those who most need to learn, learn to work hard and work smart. They think the way to get ahead is to get lucky rather than to be diligent. Uh, in terms of multi-level marketing, that's a minefield. I have a chapter on that <laughs> in the book. And I think we just have to make sure that we really are providing something that has a true service when people get involved in that. It's a matter of Christian liberty. It concerns me sometimes when people get involved in their home-based you know, network marketing business. Sometimes they're more evangelistic with whatever their current uh, scheme is. <laughs> in terms of trying to win people to that rather than winning people to Christ. Yes, yes. And sometimes it can create little groups within the church. And then sometimes I've seen examples of exaggerated claims for whatever they're marketing, which would be a violation of the commandment of God to speak truth to each other. Really good point. We're going to take a very short break. We'll come back, though, with Dr. Jim Neuheiser. His book is called Money, Debt, and Finances, Critical Questions and Answers. Back in a moment here on Janet Meffer Today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International on Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. In many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique, nine of 10 Christians are denied God's word by corrupt governments and majority religions. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me. And now it will mean so much to these bible Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor Abel. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, and a limited time match will double your gift and help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Please call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates banner at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, 
offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you here. We're talking with Dr. Jim Neuheiser, Director of the Christian Counseling Program and Associate Professor of Practical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And his book is called Money, Debt, and Finances, Critical Questions and Answers. And we were discussing some of the legitimate versus illegitimate ways of acquiring money, Jim, before we went to the break. And you were talking about the chapter in your book on multi-level marketing and, and as a matter of Christian liberty. But these principles are so important. Here's another section, though, that, that needs to be addressed. I think for many of us, there there are a lot of people who disagree on how you should spend your money. And of course, when you get into families, there can be disagreement among family members on how much should go toward this or that. And then we have to factor in how much of what we earn belongs to the Lord. How do we sort through that subject of how we spend our money, how we prioritize spending our money? Yes, Janet, I really love that question because... Most of us would love if there was a formula in terms of, well, just you give 10%, you save 20%, you live at this lifestyle. And the Lord has given us a great deal of freedom and a great deal of responsibility. There's one sense in which all of it belongs to Him and we're stewards of all of it. I would say, first of all, we need to, again, we already talked about working hard to acquire as much as we can with the skills God has given us. And then I would say Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. We ought to budget and live carefully uh, within our means. But then as God prospers you, you've got kind of three things you can do with it. You can say, look, I'm making more money. I can improve my lifestyle, have a nicer car, nicer house, eat out more often. You can look and say, well, I can save for the future, for my kids' education, for my retirement, uh, for you know, big items I want to buy in the future. And you can give it to the Lord's work. And you live in this constant tension between those three things, assuming you're, it's assuming you're acting wisely and working hard and living with, you know, in your means. And so we struggle. I think we have to be careful not to judge others. There have been things in the media recently about, well, how much is this pastor making? And, yeah. you know, what kind of house does he live in? And how much does he make selling his books? And, you know, we're all stewards of all of it. And we have some freedom to enjoy a better lifestyle. But the greatest thing we get to do in life is to give to the Lord's work, which is a joy and a privilege. And that should, that's an exciting reason to try to make more money. Right. That's a really good point. I, I do agree with you on that. And yet sometimes we'll pe- people will bring up the rich young ruler and they'll say, well, here was this one who said, you know, what shall I do, Lord, that I may ad- obtain eternal life? And then Jesus ends up telling him, if you want to be complete, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Some people will take that passage and exegete it as saying, Part of your responsibility as a Christian is to be dirt poor, because look what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. How do you incorporate that passage into our understanding of how God really views money in the totality of Scripture? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, we're told, even you know, Paul speaks to the rich in 1 Timothy 6 and says that we should be rich in good works, but he also says that God has given us all things to enjoy. And so the rich aren't rebuked for having acquired wealth. And so I think the instruction to the rich young ruler was a particular situation. 
It was to expose this man's covetousness, and it did. Yeah. And uh, But that was a particular command of Jesus to a particular person. I think an application to us would be that covetousness is really a temptation. Proverbs 30 says, give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be rich and forget God. And so we should be wary of that. But as you look at the comprehensive teaching of Scripture on wealth, uh, the Bible even warns against those who would forbid eating certain foods or enjoying certain things in this life. God has given us things to enjoy, if in His providence He hands us those things. Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content not only with little, but he says, I've actually learned to be content with abundance. So Paul himself got to handle abundance now and then. Right. And yet you pointed out earlier something that's very important. We cannot fall into the trap of like the word faith, prosperity gospel purveyors who say, well, you know, if you're not rich, you don't have enough faith. I mean, that's that's an extreme that is just unbiblical, that that's not necessarily a sign of, you know, God is mad at you if you're not rich. That's just people fall into traps when they start getting into that kind of theology. What about the issue of debt, though, Jim? Because people do struggle with debt. A lot of people struggle with debt whether it's credit card debt or whether or not they should take out a loan for a car or for a college education. How do we understand the acceptability of debt? Where would you draw the line on what you shouldn't be in debt to purchase? Right. Well, the proverb says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And this goes not just individually, but even nationally, as our government is borrowing so much. Mm. The Bible says sooner or later there'll be consequences. Right. The general principle would be you would never want to owe more for something than you could easily sell it for and pay back. So if you buy a car for $20,000 and you couldn't get 15 for it the next day, you're going to be upside down. Right. Then, you know, my advice would be save money, buy a car for cash, Anyway, but I think you know, debt should be used minimally. I'm not saying people can buy a house without debt. Most people can't. And if you're paying essentially rent for you know, the, the amount of money you'd be paying rent for your house payment, that might be a wise decision. But we ought to learn. We ought to look at debt as being something very dangerous and to use minimally and carefully, rather than as an opportunity to get things we want immediately, which can also lead to really slavery to debt and detracting from your lifestyle and your ability to give to the Lord's work. Right. That's important because people are in different circumstances and situations. Now, now, what about the Christian who says, I just want to have the newest iPhone, you know, and I'm going to go into debt in order to get that. Where do you draw the line on? Look, you don't go into debt for things that you want for sure, right? Would you, would you have any opinion on that sort of thing? Sure. I would say... The Bible teaches that debt, and I would add co-signing, for example, are foolish. I don't think you can say it's clear-cut, always sin to do so. So I would say that my advice would be live within your means, and you can have a better lifestyle and have more to give to the Lord by paying cash for things and never borrowing for a depreciating item. Uh, But if you choose to do that, I, I can't do anything to you because you've done it. I would just say you probably would be happier to be content with what the lifestyle that God has given you can afford. You know, right. if God is, you see people who have income that's kind of hamburger or hot dog income and they want steak and caviar, <laughs> yes. and it comes to cause them trouble as time goes on. So that's really getting to be content with the lifestyle that God has enabled you to have and to rejoice in it. And, and even an iPhone 8 or SE 
is a pretty good thing yes. <laughs> if you're my age when, <laughs> and uh, learning to be content with that and to just see debt as a bad thing you want to avoid rather than as a means of getting the stuff you want that you haven't yet earned. Yes, that's right. Well, we also are living in a in a country where people say, well, you know, someday I'm going to retire and I've got Social Security, no problem. I'm of the mindset that I'm looking at the unfunded liabilities in our country and saying, I'm, I'm not going to operate with the understanding that Social Security is given by the time I'm ready for it. I, I look at the debt and it's astronomical and I just can't count on the government. What do you think the Christians should follow as far as a savings plan and being able to prepare for retirement insofar as you can work and save? I I know it can be challenging for some people, but ethically speaking, biblically speaking, what kind of responsibility do we have to save for our own lives in retirement with or without Social Security? Right. Well, the ant in Proverbs 6 knows winter's coming and stores up during the summer. And so the, you know, may, we may say we want to work until we die, but not all of us will be physically and mentally capable of being productive as we get older. So it seems wise to make provision for the future by saving, probably given the prospects of inflation. Uh, you can't really do very well just sticking your money in the bank or stuffing it in a mattress. So you want to try to find a way to invest in productive businesses that are producing goods and services that have value to people over the long term. And, you know, little by little, there's a proverb that says the one who is hasty to get rich becomes poor, but the one who gathers little by little increases wealth. And so you'd have a a regular program of putting something aside. Uh, And, you know, they may may probably have Social Security. They can print as much money as they want, but I think (laughs) it won't be enough for very many people. And so that's part of what financial wisdom would be to see certain things are likely future events and to do our best to be prepared for them. Yeah, that's good advice. What about investing? You you touched on that when you say clearly if you just put money away and, and put it in something extremely safe that doesn't grow faster than the rate of inflation, then you're going to be upside down at some point. But what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when they invest? One of the biggest mistakes people make is they invest in things they don't understand. Right. Yes, and they get taken in by rich get rich quick schemes that I can give you ten percent risk free when the bank won't give you one percent right now. <laughs> so I think you need to understand what you're doing. I think you need to be careful of how much people who are selling and advising on investments are taking out of your investment money, which is going to destroy your principal. It's going to destroy your return, or it's going to damage your return or just allowing people who are self-interested and don't know what they're doing to manage your money. I think wisdom is some diversity among assets you understand. We talk in the book about equities, bonds, real estate. Uh, Some people do a little bit in metals. I think ultimately, though, we have to trust the Lord for the future. We can make wise provision. And as hard a man makes a plan, the Lord directs his steps. There's nothing you can do other than trust God in terms of certainty for the future. But wisdom would say you diversify and you save little by little over a lifetime. And then if the economy collapses or we go into another Great Depression or the governments confiscate your stuff, then you trust God to take care of you. 
Yes. Well, and that's good good advice, too, for us to remember, ultimately, everything is from the Lord, and all, the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to Him, and everything that we have, as you said at the outset, Jim, goes back to glorifying God with our finances, just as we are to glorify Him in every other area of our lives. But just a terrific book, lots of great advice in here, Money, Debt, and Finances, Critical Questions and Answers by our guest, Dr. Jim Neuheiser. So good to talk to you, Jim. Thank you for the good advice. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. You are welcome. God bless you. And thanks again. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. It's been a very interesting last couple of days. It always is, isn't it? It's just been very interesting lately. But over Easter weekend, and I hope you had a very blessed Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I just love saying that. It's been very interesting to see what has gone on at the hands of the left. Let's see, for example, uh, the Senator Raphael Warnock had a very interesting tweet that he deleted He deleted it. It said the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. (laughs) Oh, really? He's an ordained minister, by the way. He's an ordained minister. And now he's coming out with this tweet and then was quickly uh, very, very much... uh, I don't know, made to feel like he didn't know what even Christianity was in the first place. So there's your senator from Georgia. And you also had Marjorie Taylor Greene, the representative, also uh, suspended. Her her account was suspended on Twitter because she put he is risen. So we got some interesting things going on, interesting times. Let's see what else went on. Oh, yes. Right before Easter, a professor of theology and Baptist studies at Duke University Divinity School said that a social media post in which he called evangelical Christianity the greatest threat to human existence was taken out of context. How do you take that out of context? (laughs) It's pretty straightforward to call Christianity uh, something that bad and then try to walk it back. Yeah, okay. Let's see. Uh, Curtis Freeman is his name, and now he's put his account on lockdown so people can't see all his future horrible tweets. But he said that uh, I'm not an evangelical Christian. I follow Jesus Christ. I affirm life. I accept science. I am not a know-nothing. Evangelical Christianity is a threat to human existence. Okay. He didn't really mean it. You just read it wrong. So we've got all of this going on. And in the midst of all this, we had a very heartwarming message from President Biden and his wife, Jill, because apparently he can't get through an entire minute and a half of wishing the country happy Easter without Jill behind him. I mean, how long is it going to be until America just says this guy is not up to the task? Clearly, all you need to do is listen to him. Let's listen to part of what he said here. Cut to. Jill and I want to send you our warmest Easter greetings to you and your family. As we celebrate this most holy day, we know many are still going without familiar comforts of the season. The virus is not gone, 
And so many of us still feel the longing and loneliness of distance. For a second year, most will be apart from their families, their friends, the full congregations that fill us with joy. And yet, as the Gospel of John reminds us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The traditions of Holy Week take us on a journey from sorrow to salvation, reminding us that with faith, hope, and love, anything is possible. And today, as spring returns, we see hope all around us. Families are getting the financial help they need to take a breath once again. Businesses are recovering, and more and more Americans are getting life-saving vaccines. Now, I don't know if you knew this prior to listening to the president and his wife bringing you that heartwarming Easter message, but Easter is all about vaccines and coronavirus. Did you know that? It is, because nothing says Easter more than the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson vaccines. That's what Easter is all about, at least according to the Bidens. And here's how it ended. This is President Biden, cut three. We share the sentiments of Pope Francis, who has said that getting vaccinated is a moral obligation, one that can save your life and the lives of others. By getting vaccinated and encouraging your congregations and your communities to get vaccinated, we not only can beat this virus, we can also hasten the day when we can celebrate the holidays together again. This Easter, from our family to yours, we wish you health, hope, joy, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Happy Easter, everyone. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Now, you would think that when you are doing some sort of an Easter greeting, you might mention the reason for the day. You might mention the name of the one whom is the central focus of Easter, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. People were pointing this out on Twitter. He didn't mention Jesus Christ one time in his Easter message, but he mentioned coronavirus seven times. So what does the left really worship? Did you hear him slurring his words? I know he wasn't drunk, I assume he wasn't drunk, but he certainly was slurring his words all over the place. This is just embarrassing. And you hear about all these military buildups that are taking place now, Russia and the Arctic and China and the South China Sea and rattling the saber at Taiwan. You think we live in a safe world? You think we have the the, the proper defense that we need there in the United States, in Washington with the president and also the woke military? Yeah, the woke military. Fantastic. Why don't you focus more on genders and making sure that everybody's on the right side of wokeism? Because that's what's really important, not making sure that we have national security. Oh, and by the way, that open border, don't worry about it. They're busing people into those red states. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Coronavirus. Listen, they had an Easter bunny and the Easter bunny had a mask. I don't know what you people are concerned about. As long as the Easter bunny is masked up, America will move forward. Of course, I'm being facetious. Now, contrast the Biden's Easter message with that of the prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson. And you tell me who gave a better Easter message. Here he is. Cut four. Happy Easter to everyone who is celebrating today. I know that for many people that means chocolate eggs and the Easter bunny and hot cross buns and all the rest of it, and I will certainly be joining in. But let's not lose sight of the fact that this is Christianity's most important festival, and that while churches are open, the ongoing coronavirus restrictions mean that, once again, it won't be possible for many Christians to mark Easter in the way that they would like. But if there's one thing 
British Christians have shown us this year. It's that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, not just today, but every day. His teachings and the message of his death and resurrection permeate through every aspect of daily life. That was pretty good. I don't like the teachings part because Jesus was not Confucius. Christianity is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not about his teachings. They never really quite grasped that over in pagan land. But that was better. That was better. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. But I'll take it because at least you named the Lord. Unlike the president of the United States. It's just so embarrassing. You know who I really love this Easter, though? I love this pastor in Canada, this Polish pastor in Canada, who had all these cops burst into his church because he allegedly wasn't following the COVID-19 restrictions properly, and he wasn't having it. Listen to a portion of what he said. This is cut one. Please get out. Get out of this property. Immediately get out. Get out of this property immediately. Out. I don't want to hear anything. Out of this property immediately. I don't want to hear a word. Out. Out. Out of this property immediately until you come back with a warrant. Out. 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 Out of this property immediately out. Immediately go out and don't come back. Don't, I don't want to talk to you. Okay. Not a word. Out of this property. Out of this property. Immediately out. I don't care what you have to say. Out. Out. Out of this property, you Nazis. Out. That's how you do it. And he went on to call them the Gestapo. You know what? The, the people from Eastern Europe aren't going to take it. They understand what this is. They understand what this looks like. And God bless him. That is Pastor Arthur Polowski. And God bless him. And by the way, those cops were violating their own law, which says everyone who willfully disturbs or interrupts an assemblage of persons met for religious worship or for a moral, social or benevolent purpose is guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction. They were breaking the law. Then they came out with this outrageous statement. This is Calgary police. And they said, oh, one uniformed member of the Calgary police service attended a call to assist our partner agencies. Yeah, there were a lot more. That there was a lot more uh, than one cop there. Watch the video. It's all over the Internet. And they're defending themselves and they're just not telling the truth. I love pastors like that. I wish we had a million pastors like that. The state is not Lord over the church. Jesus Christ is Lord over his church. We'll be right back. After taking the morning after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant. I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done, Lord. I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the 
the gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Speaking of censorship, where we saw Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, have her Twitter account suspended for saying he is risen on Easter. Jack Dorsey can't handle that kind of incitement to violence, I suppose. It really is getting out of control. But this is kind of interesting. There is a new report out from an organization called the Napa Legal Institute. I'm not very familiar with them, but apparently they work with a lot of faith-based organizations. There was a story in the Christian Post about this. And they did this study called Deplatforming the Threat-Facing Faith-Based Organizations. And I wanted to share a little bit of this with you because I think this is our future and we need to really come to terms with where we are. The problem, as they say, is big tech's unpredictable deplatforming of faith-based organizations and their leaders has become so frequent that faith-based organizations can no longer rely on continuous service from these companies, particularly social media providers. Faith leaders must respond decisively to the change landscape. And then they give the context. Since the start of 2021, faith-based organizations have been deplatformed at least weekly by big tech companies, particularly those providing social media services. Yeah, we, no- we noticed this. While policy debates over content moderation continue, faith-based nonprofits need to understand who is being deplatformed, why, and what strategies are effective for overcoming deplatforming. Here is the landscape as the Napa Legal Institute puts it out. Four clear takeaways are emerging in this area. Number one, this is very interesting to me. Organizations with missions centered around important cultural and policy issues are at greater risk of deplatforming. For example, pro-life groups, pro-family organizations, Christian organizations addressing issues related to human sexuality. Gee, I wonder who that might be. And faith-based news organizations have been targeted more often than organizations that run 
tutoring programs or soup kitchens. Okay, did we really think they were going to deplatform people promoting soup kitchens? That's social justice. Hey, I'm all for soup kitchens. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that's not going to make you run afoul of big gay or big tech. They don't want you preaching the gospel. They don't want you coming up against their sacraments like abortion. They don't want that. They've got to silence you. They've got to shut you up. Number two, deplatformed organizations often receive little or no explanation of why they were deplatformed. Many organizations stated their attempts at communication with the big tech providers seem to fall into a black hole. Yeah, we noticed that. We went through that with our God's Voice conference. And by the way, we are a Christian organization that combats the issue of sin and the issue of sexuality being fluid. And we hold to a very strong biblical conviction that the Lord has laid out for us in his, his word that they were created male and female and that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman. And all of these people who are coming into evangelicalism and once conservative denominations and pushing this LGBTQ plus Christianity garbage, we're going to refute you with the word of God. And that's not politically correct, which was why we had our videos from our God's Voice conference removed from Vimeo. And you remember that whole thing. They, they don't want to hear it. You're not allowed to have an alternative viewpoint. You can have an alternative lifestyle. You just can't have an alternative viewpoint. Number three, deplatforming usually impacts all functionalities on the social media service, not just the ability to publish. And this means that contacts, followers, and historical publications and posts will not be available. Right. They rip your stuff down. They take away your followers. They suspend you. Been there, done that. It's why I'm not on social media anymore. Why should we have to put up with that? Why do people hang around? I, I get it. People want to be able to promote their radio shows or their podcasts or their books or their organizations, but they're coming for you. They're coming for you. I, I don't see Washington shaking the rafters, protecting us from this kind of censorship. They don't care. They don't care. They'll have all these con- congressional meetings and they'll shake their fist and they'll say tough things into the cameras and then they'll shut off the cameras and move on and nothing happens. Although I have an update on that. In just a second. But number four, public pressure and media attention can help. Many organizations that have successfully had their accounts restored attribute their success to public support, particularly through media coverage and related grassroots pressure rather than to the tech company's own appeals process. So you have to have some sort of effort outside people just saying, hey, wait a minute. Because that's not going to work forever. The more they're able to work on the human minds who are easily moldable on the left and in the middle and young people going, yeah, free speech is racist. Free speech is horrible. Free speech isn't progressive. We have to be protected. We need our safe spaces from people who speak hate, even though there's nothing hateful about what they're saying. We we don't like free speech. Well, how much are you going to miss free speech when you no longer get free speech? That's what these people don't understand. If they would take away my free speech today, they'll take away yours tomorrow. So put two and two together. Have you never studied totalitarian societies in history? Probably not. Not if you go to a public school. They're probably just making you read, you know, Robin D'Angelo, and that's the extent of your English literature. Good grief. Now, here's an interesting story that goes along with what I was just telling you. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, in an opinion that was issued on Monday, said social media companies have too much power over public speech, suggesting they be treated as utilities. 
so they can be regulated by the government. Hmm, this is via World Net, uh, World Net Daily. The solo opinion came in the court's dismissal of a case over former President Trump's efforts to block critics from his personal Twitter account. Thomas said a few private companies, such as Twitter and Facebook, have the power to cut free speech, warning that the Supreme Court will soon need to address the issue. Why can't we have nine Clarence Thomases? This guy is the best. Seriously, he's the best. He really is. And I like a few of the others. The rest of them can go. But why can't we have nine Clarence Thomases? Why? Okay. The high court ruled the case against Trump is moot because he's no longer president and Twitter permanently banned his account. Thomas wrote, this is not the first or only case to raise issues about digital platforms. While this case involves a suit against a public official, the court properly rejects today a separate petition alleging that digital platforms, not individuals on those platforms, violated public accommodations laws, the First Amendment and antitrust laws. Thomas said the petitions highlight two important facts. Today, digital platforms, he said, provide avenues for historically unprecedented amounts of speech, including speech by government actors. Also unprecedented, however, is the concentrated control of so much speech in the hands of a few private parties. We will soon have no choice but to address how our legal doctrines apply to highly concentrated, privately owned information infrastructure, such as digital platforms. Now, another case addressing the issue was brought by conservative activist and political candidate Laura Loomer, alleging big tech companies are discriminating against conservatives in violation of the Constitution. The antitrust case was distributed for conference for weeks, but ultimately was not accepted by the high court. It argued the social media companies' platforms are a place of public accommodation, meaning they're not allowed to censor conservative content. In his opinion... Thomas explained that while a Twitter user can remove a few people from a conversation, Twitter can remove any person from the platform, including the president of the United States at any time for any or no reason. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals had ruled against Trump, claiming that while he was president, he used his account to discuss political matters, meaning anyone who commented on his tweets was engaging in a public forum protected by the First Amendment. The court reasoned, therefore, that Trump's blocking of any opinions was unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination. It's kind of hilarious, though, because you're right. Unless you go after Twitter, what good is it going after the president for his blocking people on Twitter when Twitter took the president out of the platform altogether. You have to deal with this. And maybe if they did deal with these social media platforms and big tech, the way they deal with utilities, that that would solve it. But the problem is there are so few people in public life who really have the will and the ability to deal with this. How many times do we hear about Section 230? Nothing was done. And people came out and said, well, there are good reasons to have Section 230 in place and we don't want to mess with that for other reasons. Okay, fine. Come up with another solution. This one seems pretty good to me. Why shouldn't they be treated like utilities? You can't deny electricity or water or garbage service to somebody because of their political opinions. I mean, thus far. But Twitter can get rid of you. Facebook can get rid of you. And, and, you know, the problem is, as we've now seen during the course of the election, it's not enough to just yell, well, create better platforms for yourselves. Yeah, that worked out great for Parler. They created an alternative media site. And what happened? They got booted by big tech. So there you have it. What do you do? These people have a monopoly. They have basically a monopoly and they are absolutely ruthless when it comes to alternative opinions, which are usually the right ones. Nobody wants violence. Nobody wants threats on social media. I think we can all agree on that pretty much. 
We don't want pornography. But we need free speech in America. Or we're going to cease to be America at some point. Our Constitution is a great document. Our Bill of Rights is absolutely critical to preserve. And it's going to take we the people to continue to keep them in play. So pray for this country. Thank you for being with us on Janet Mefford today. It's always great to have you here. Hope you'll join us next time. This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.